My name is Andrew Perlot. Welcome to The Turning Wheel, a podcast about the pivot points of human history and the fascinating questions that underlie our civilization. This is episode one of my 12-part series, Kingdom of Iron and Rust. Why didn't the Roman Emperor, Marcus Aurelius, kill his son, Commodus? It probably sounds like a strange question, since we normally don't object to men refraining from the murder of their children, but Marcus Aurelius wasn't an average sort of man, and Commodus was far from an average son. In this series, we're going to examine the life of a man reigning over a civilization at the edge of a cliff. We'll not only be exploring how Marcus Aurelius, one of the best and most far-sighted emperors the Romans ever had, chose to rule in incredibly turbulent times, but also how he unintentionally came to sever his country's long relay race of competent leadership, and, perhaps, opened up a new phase of classical civilization, the beginning of the end. Marcus Aurelius was the last of the so-called five good emperors of the Roman Empire. They were all talented men who chose to adopt mature, competent, and just successors as their heirs, one after the other, for 84 years, probably the best eight decades the Roman Empire ever saw. Marcus was the last of these five, but his death also marked the end of the 206-year Pax Romana, or Roman peace, which began with the first emperor Augustus and came to a rapid end with the ascension of Marcus's son, Commodus. Although far from perfect, this centuries-long period of relative tranquility was miraculous in the context of civilization up to that point. The famous Roman Republic had been dead nearly two centuries by the time of our story, but the Romans, ironically, seemed to have traded their liberty for security and prosperity. The empire ruled over somewhere between 70 and 100 million people, or perhaps a quarter of the world's population. Their trade routes spanned the known world, spiraling out to Africa, India, and China. Law courts ensured justice was done, and an imperial army of 400,000 men guarded the borders. Never before had so many lived under the protection of reasonably benevolent laws, benefited from significant economic growth, and perhaps most importantly, enjoyed a freedom from the constant warfare that had plagued most of human history. This sort of societal-wide thriving wouldn't come again until the last shots of World War II were fired, and, to be fair, we're really only three-quarters of a century into this current interlude of Mediterranean harmony, so it may not last anywhere near as long. There's no question that the Romans living at the time of Marcus and Commodus, as well as those coming in the centuries down the road, thought of Commodus as a disaster and a turning point for their civilization. In his Chronicle of Roman History, the historian Cassius Dio wrote of the ascension of Commodus with just a few years of hindsight, quote, Our history now plunges from a kingdom of gold to one of iron and rust, unquote. If you believe that one bad succession spiraled into 1850 years of war and societal fragmentation that only really ended in the modern era, or even if you just think that the decision led to a few bad decades of imperial policy that Rome could ill afford, then you might be tempted to be harsh when reviewing Marx's choice to let Commodus succeed him. 
After all, Marcus was probably the closest the Western world ever got to Plato's much-vaunted philosopher-king ideal, and with a grace, equanimity, and undeniable talent, he saw off challenges that would have humbled lesser men. Dio says of Marcus, quote, I admire him all the more for this very reason, that amid unusual and extraordinary happenings, he both himself survived and preserved the empire. One thing in particular contributed to his lack of happiness, the fact that after rearing and educating his son in the best possible way, he was monstrously disappointed in him." Unquote. In many respects, Commodus was Marcus's only enduring failure. Not only did ancient historians question how such a steadfast, wise man could sire such a disappointing heir, but they wondered why he would allow such an obviously unsuitable son to succeed him when he knew what the stakes were. So this series is the story of Abbot's succession, but it's also the story of Marcus the Man, who, compared to his psychotic son Commodus, is the far more interesting and nuanced character. It's also a story of the almost invisible background events that dominated Rome's ability to pull itself out of its multiple tailspins. It's a story of a kingdom of gold descending into one of iron and rust. So if we want to understand Marcus's decision to go with his own questionable offspring, we need to not only know a bit about him, his son, and the state of the empire at the time of Marcus's death, but also a bit about the men who preceded him and ultimately led to his ascension to the throne. Over these next episodes, we'll dive into the different aspects of Marcus's life and character, what Commodus was like, and we'll also examine whether the ascension of Commodus really was the beginning of the end of Roman civilization. The episodes are meant to be watched in order, and watching them at random will likely rob you of some of the context that the earlier episodes provide. But however you want to take them in, enjoy. Part 1. The Five Good Emperors The Five Good Emperors got their start with a dagger. It was hidden in the fake arm bandage of a freedman named Stephanus. The Roman Emperor Domitian was paranoid about assassinations and had feared an attempt on his life for years, but his guards didn't check Stephanus' bandage, and the Emperor's sword had been removed from where he kept it under his pillow. And seven stabs later, Rome was in need of a new Emperor. The people of Rome knew what happened when power vacuums went unfilled. If their history was any indication, soon ambitious men would rise to fill Domitian's spot, fighting it out amongst themselves. The collateral damage would be the empire's people and borders left unguarded, crumbling infrastructure left unrepaired, and countless thousands of the empire's soldiers cut down in their prime through needless civil war. The Roman Senate hoped that if they moved quickly enough, they might save the empire the ravages of yet another conflict, and so, within hours of Domitian's assassination, they'd proclaimed Nerva, one of their own, as the next emperor. He was in some ways an odd choice, an elderly technocrat and statesman who had no closely related male heir to succeed him. Although his brief interlude as Rome's emperor was effective and benevolent in most respects, he struggled to assert any control over Rome's powerful military, which rightfully viewed him as a rich aristocrat, with no experience in military matters and little idea of what their lives were like. Nerva's solution was a policy choice that not only served him in the moment, but would ensure the competent leadership of the Roman state for decades to come. 
He was smart enough to realize that his lack of a son was actually an opportunity. He could wield the choice of his own successor as a tool for stabilizing his precarious reign. If he made the right choice, he would not only appease the Roman army, but would ensure that the man who followed him was also a talented administrator who would leave the empire better than he'd found it. Nerva chose the respected general and patrician Trajan, who, after Nerva died a little more than a year later, expanded the empire to its greatest territorial extent through several wars and while also improving its infrastructure to administration. But Trajan also lacked an heir, and he ended up adopting Hadrian, who was a talented commander, a devoted lover of Greek culture, and a favorite of Trajan's wife. Unlike prior emperors, who mostly stayed close to Rome when not actively commanding armies, Hadrian spent most of his peaceful reign traveling the often neglected provinces. He streamlined some of the empire's more unwieldy borders that had resulted from Trajan's new conquests, built new ports, roads, and aqueducts through the far reaches of imperial territory, and generally kept things running smoothly for 21 years. Hadrian's romantic affections were mostly directed towards another man, and his marriage to his wife had produced no children, so as he got older, he started looking for a worthy heir. His eye would eventually fall on Marcus, who was then called Marcus Aeneas Verus. Hadrian had been watching Marcus since he was a little boy, and although Marcus was only a teenager at the time that Hadrian was looking for a successor, the emperor appreciated his studious, philosophical outlook and obvious intelligence. Marcus's keen moral compass and devotion to Stoic philosophy also seemed to have impressed Hadrian. The emperor made a word play out of the boy's name Verus, which means truth. Hadrian called Marcus... Verisimius, which means truest. Now let's just pause the story here for a minute. Imagine you're a teenager, the emperor, who you've heard a lot about, but who has been away from Rome for most of your life, traveling around the empire, finally comes home. He's been back a time or two before when you were a young boy, and you remember his visits to your family, but your family's moved in the same circle, so it didn't. you didn't really think too much of it. But... Now he's back in Rome and spending a lot of time visiting your family. He seems to be really interested in asking you questions about your studies, your thoughts on philosophical questions. People are whispering that the emperor's interest in you seems a bit more than casual. If the interest had come a decade before, it would have been said that Hadrian was interested in you as a bedmate. But now the emperor was clearly sick. He suffered from dropsy, or a swelling of his body, and regularly bled from the nose. Clearly, his interest in you was beyond what might be warranted by sexual appetite. No, it became clear, clearer and clear that Hadrian was evaluating you as a possible heir to the throne. Now, we've all seen this story play out in fiction before. It's a trope. The powerful old man, whether it's a king or a god or a wizard, notices the potential of the young teenager and elevates him to greatness or invites him on a quest or teaches him the lost art, the magic. It sounds like fiction, but that's pretty much what happened to Marcus. He got plucked out of a life of, granted, a relatively high-status life, a, a relatively affluent life. His, his parents had tons of money. Uh, but 
you know, he wasn't destined for greatness as far as he knew, but here he was getting chosen to become an emperor. Now, Hadrian's original succession plan had unraveled after the candidate died young, and Marcus kept getting older and more impressive in his character, so Hadrian came up with a plan to get him the empire's top spot. When Marcus was 18 years old and Hadrian's health was in rapid decline, the emperor felt Marcus needed a few more years of seasoning before becoming emperor. His solution was to adopt a respected elder statesman from the Senate. Antoninus Pius, and insist that Antoninus in turn adopt Marcus as his heir. Interestingly, he also insisted that Antoninus adopt the son of Hadrian's earlier candidate, the young Lucius Verus. This was probably a way of ensuring the succession if Marcus died young, while also making sure that there wouldn't be a rival claimant to the throne brought about by Varus's father's earlier brush with the purple and the familial aspirations that might go with that. In Roman history, if you kind of had any brush with the purple, you, in other words, uh, the, the emperor had like, you know, at any point indicated that you might be an heir or related to him or in any way connected to the throne, people would think that, you know, you, you had some tinge of imperial greatness about you and you could theoretically be the next emperor, and therefore you were also a threat to anyone else who wanted to become emperor because you were a rival. So Hadrian, pretty brilliantly, not only found a reliable stopgap to uh, serve as a, uh, you know, a, a butt warmer on the throne, but he got his real choice as the stopgap's heir, and then he also managed to wrap up the loose cannon, the guy that theoretically could have caused problems for Marcus, wrapped up in the succession too. So he, he really killed a lot of birds with one stone. So you might imagine that upon being informed that he would one day be the most powerful man in the world, command the greatest war machine ever created, and control more wealth than he could possibly spend, more territory than he could possibly visit, a young man would be pleased. But Marcus was not pleased. The Augustan history of Roman-era compilation that draws from historical works by six different authors tells us, quote, when he discovered, moreover, that Hadrian had adopted him, he was appalled rather than overjoyed, and when told to move to the private home of Hadrian, reluctantly departed his mother's villa. And when members of his household asked him why he was sorry to receive royal adoption, he enumerated to them the evil things that sovereignty involved." Unquote. Marcus may have been young, but his character was already set. From a young age, he had avoided the plush accommodations and shows of wealth that his family's fortune could have brought him. He dressed in a simple cloak, avoided rich food, and preferred to sleep on the floor to accustom himself to hardship. This is indicative of his character. Marcus didn't just believe in studying philosophy. He wanted to actively put it into practice. In his years as emperor, he would show time and time again that it was possible to bring virtue and a life lived according to the stoic ideal of acting in accordance with nature to the most powerful job in Rome. As the new heir apparent, Marcus had to adopt the pomp of court and some outward shows of wealth, but he didn't let it change his character. Many years later, he would write a reminder to himself in his personal journal, which has come down to us under the name Meditations that, quote, one can live well even in a palace, unquote. 
By this, Marcus didn't mean living well by the modern conception of, you know, affluence and time for leisure activities and uh, maybe some degree of professional success and a happy family life. He meant that one could still display the four Stoic virtues, practical wisdom, moderation, courage, and justice, while living in the lap of luxury. Well, many other emperors had gone soft or become despotic surrounded by opulence, it was Marcus's intention to stay a humble man. Marcus would have preferred to spend his life reading books and practicing philosophy, but he didn't retreat from the duty that was now placed before him. He reminded himself, quote, Everything, a horse, a vine, is created for some duty. For what task, then, were you yourself created? A man's true delight is to do the things he was made for. Let your one delight and refreshment be to pass from one service to the community to another, unquote. What is your profession, he asked himself, quote, to be a good man, unquote. Given that Hadrian was on his last legs at the age of 62, he must have assumed that the 51-year-old Antoninus, who he'd ordered to adopt Marcus, wouldn't have a long reign ahead of him, and that Marcus would be emperor by, you know, 30 at the latest. But after Hadrian died, Antoninus went on to rule an incredible 21 steady, mostly uneventful years. Although dutiful and adept administrator, Antoninus never left Italy and insisted that his two heirs, Marcus and Lucius, stay at home as well, stripping them of the practical command experience that had served prior emperors so well. But it's clear from Marcus's surviving writings that Marcus respected Antoninus and seemed to bear his long apprenticeship with more equanimity than many other royal heirs had managed. When Antoninus finally died, there was no opposition to the 39-year-old Marcus taking the throne. The three legs of the stool that held up the imperial throne, the senate, the people, and the army, all approved of him. Marcus had spent his years as the royal heir, studying philosophy, mastering law, and serving alongside Antoninus as co-administrator of the empire. But on the other hand, Lucius Verus, Antoninus's other adopted son, had spent that time gaining a reputation as a playboy and a partier. He was more physically robust than the often sickly Marcus, handsome and fond of athletics and chariot racing. We're told that he was a reasonably good student and public speaker, but just not as devoted to the job as Marcus, and probably not a first-rate thinker. His frequent affairs and all-night revels made for a stark contrast with his more somber brother. While Marcus was slaving away over administrative questions, Varus would sneak out in disguise, getting into fights and drinking with the common people. Furthermore, it seems that Antoninus recognized that Varus didn't have much talent. He gave most of the tougher administrative jobs and imperial honors to Marcus, which may have left Lucius with little to do besides party. He did, however, avoid humiliating the boy, and gave him a seat on the imperial council, and made sure he had the same tutors that Marcus had. Given the disparity in experience and temperament between the two men, the Senate wanted to proclaim Marcus sole emperor and sideline Lucius after the death of Antoninus in 161 AD. But Marcus insisted that he would not take the job unless Lucius was made his co-emperor. 
few men would have turned down soul rule, but Marcus seemed keen on sharing power with a man who, in many ways, was his total opposite. It was understood that Varus was the junior partner in the relationship by the Senate and people of Rome, and Marcus had the final say in just about everything, but it's still curious that he would take this risk. We'll explore why he might have done this later. Just a few months into the reign of the new co-emperors, they got some bad news. The Parthians, Rome's old enemy, was on the move. The Parthians had invaded Rome's client kingdom of Armenia, ousting its king and installing their own puppet. A Roman legion, the governor of Cappadocia, led to throw them out, was surrounded and annihilated. A separate Parthian army crossed the Euphrates River and routed the army Syria's governor led out to confront them. The long, quiet reign of Antoninus Pius was gone, and it looked like Rome's two new emperors were about to be tested. Next time, we'll be talking about Parthia, the empire Romans could never seem to keep conquered, in Marcus's attempt to do what several great Roman leaders had failed to do in the past, beat the famous horse warriors on the field of battle. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, will you do me two favors? First, can you give us a good review on iTunes or whatever podcasting service you use? It really helps people discover the podcast. And really, that's what's going to keep it going if uh, you know we need enough listeners to, to make it worthwhile. Second, if you've got the cash, please consider donating a buck or two to this show each time a episode is released. If you do, you'll get some goodies. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be releasing a bonus episode as part of this series, Kingdom of Iron and Rust, looking at Marcus's interactions with his people. I've also got some other ideas uh, planned before the end of this first series, so uh, you'll get some cool stuff for supporting the show. And uh, thanks for listening, and uh, I hope to see you next time.